0: This is Brain
1: Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Before we begin today's episode, I want to first thank all you beautiful people out there for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed listening, one way you can help support us is by leaving us a review or rating on iTunes. It's so simple. Just head to the Brain Matters page on iTunes and let us know what you think. To show you how much we appreciate the feedback, if you send us a screenshot of your review, we will send you a personalized thank you video from the Brain Matters crew. You can send the screenshot to our email, brainmatters@brainpodcast.com, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. You guys are the best. All right, let's do the show. In today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Ben Strobridge, a neuroscientist at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. The primary goal of Dr. Strobridge's lab is to try and understand how our brains make computations. That is, how it takes in information processes it, and generates some kind of output. This is no simple task. Now, while our brains are incredibly complicated, it's not just a random mess up in there. Brains are made up of a limited number of different kinds of neurons, probably somewhere in the hundreds, and these arrange in patterns that repeat themselves over and over again. By focusing on trying to understand how a single one of these patterns works, Dr. Strobridge can greatly simplify the problem and can hopefully tell us something about how the whole system makes computations. Answers to these questions can help tell us fundamental properties about how the brain works. In the interview, we talked about how Dr. Strobridge approaches this problem, about how his work has helped answer some questions about how our sense of smell works, as well as how short-term memories could be generated and about his affinity for saving the not-so-popular types of brain cells from their obscurity. Enjoy. Could you introduce yourself and talk about questions that you ask in in your lab right now?
0: So I'm Ben Strowridge. I am a professor in the Neurosciences Department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, in snowy Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm on sabbatical, so I'm away from the snow right now. So my lab's interested in what's the computation that's done by small networks of neurons. So I think people work in the nervous system at all sorts of levels. So some people try and understand just what is a single neuron do or what is a compartment of one neuron do. And other people work at the level of the whole animal, recording a subset of cells or field potentials in an animal that's behaving. And they're all sort of interesting approaches that have... Sp- trade-offs but one thing that is sort of the middle ground is is taking the idea that many brain areas have iterated structures right so the neocortex is not you know millions of cells that are all different the neocortex when the end of the day we know everything about the neocortex there'll be probably a few hundred cell types and a few you know hundreds of stereotype patterns of connections And from those rules and those building blocks, we should be able to infer the computation that's done by one local collection of cells, one column or one module of cells, that then is iterated across cortex to make columns or hypercolumns. And so we're trying to take advantage of the tools that give us cellular resolution, and especially to give us the resolution to look at the synaptic inputs themselves instead of inferring them from spike patterns and trying to understand what's the logic of how inputs and outputs in a brain region are are generated how specific output patterns are generated by specific input patterns going through this network of local circuit connections
1: Okay so the if i if i got this straight the idea is that although the brain is incredibly complex we can potentially reduce them down into these smaller sets of circuits do you have a particular favorite area to go into to look at these patterns
0: yeah so we are trying to keep things uh as tractable as possible and so we work in a couple of different brain areas that are evolutionarily very old right so we work in the olfactory bulb and we work in the dentate gyrus And so these are areas where there's probably more stereotype patterns. There's less sort of variant, many variants of different kinds of connectivity. So I think going into, say, neocortex or frontal cortex is probably a much harder way to look at this question because there are probably many different iterated circuits, but there are so many that it's going to be hard to pin them all down and to say, this particular input output pattern is because of this kind of connectivity.
1: If you were just look at the, the anatomy, can you just immediately detect like, oh, this is looks like a more kind of uh, repetitive pattern? Yes.
0: Yeah. So the olfactory bulb is, is wonderful for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that it has a very stereotype pattern of inputs that are kept very segregated. And so when you smell banana, You are activating lots of different kinds. You have about a thousand different kinds of receptor cells in your nose that each cell has expresses one of these thousand kinds of receptor proteins. And those receptor channels go into the bulb and the bulb keeps all that information separate. So you might activate, you know, a hundred different kinds of out of a thousand different kinds of olfactory receptors when you smell something. But those turn out to be a 100 distinct input locations in the olfactory bulb. Right? So it's a much more tractable problem than going into a system where everything is, say, in the middle of the brain and in anorhinal cortex or something like that, someplace like that, where you have incredibly complex polysensory information with very little anatomy that you can look at that say these are where this kind of input comes or this is this flavor of input Mm -hmm. right so right now with molecular biology you can go and look at specific input stations glomeruli and the olfactory bulb and say they correspond to this one particular receptor right and if you know the ligands that turn on that olfactory receptor you can predict when this column of cells will be activated Mm -hmm. right And the olfactory bulb is also a wonderful area to think about how the brain creates information, how it creates codes. Because it's not the case like the immune system where you have this lock and key, right? You don't smell banana because one particular receptor cell turned on and one channel in the olfactory bulb turned on. You can smell banana or you can tell the difference between peppermint and spearmint smells. Because you can tell the difference between highly overlapping clouds of these activity patterns. Input activity patterns.
1: Is there some sort of expansion uh, in the brain, or is it one-to-one, kind of like...
0: So that the, there is a ratio between the number of receptor subtypes and the number of these input stations that's really species-dependent. It varies all over the place. Yeah. Um, but what is constant is this idea that you're creating a population you never have this lock and key mechanism where you have one channel as really one odor even though if you were tested you probably could discriminate in the range of, a, of one or a few thousand different odors which somehow coincidentally matches the number of receptors yeah but that is not it's sort of a misleading correlation because there, you know Anything in the environment will turn on lots of these receptor channels. But the, the thing that I think is the most interesting in terms of general principles is that you have a system in, the, in a early, in a primitive sense, that's sort of evolutionarily old. Whatever the rules are that shaping the rest of the brain probably were established in these more primitive brain areas. And so these rules let you already do this sort of beautiful computation where you can segregate these different patterns. And you can generate a population code in the output of the olfactory bulb that reflects information about what was different across these different overlapping clouds of activity.
1: Let's, can we talk about the methods that you use to, to answer this? Yeah, so questions? we,
0: we um, do very little in, in behavioral neuroscience. So this is what I was describing is more of sort of the textbook view of how this works, and it builds on very elegant experiments in insects and mammals by others in understanding the relationship between the firing of cells in the olfactory bulb and the sensory input. So there is, you know, for everything in science, there are trade-offs. And the problem with giving natural sensory stimuli, like odors, is that they have you know, their own world inside the sensory system. Right, it's especially true for odors, right? So you can have, the, when you smell something, it has to go through... Pathways in your nose. It can be absorbed by mucus with different rates. It can bind to different receptors based on where they are in the, in the pathways within your nose. So there's all this complexity that, that can give you all sorts of dynamics just on its own. So all independent of the actual firing of neurons even before you get to that stage. And then the transduction process is another sort of beautiful but complex to understand process in olfaction. So, For us, the advantage of the brain slice and having just one brain area is that we can get closer to what are the dynamics in the circuit because we have much more experimental control over the inputs, right? So we're not applying odors to an animal. We're stimulating the input stations directly and in different patterns and asking how do we how do we start to interpret the output and then the, the cells that are the interneurons that are helping doing this decoding? How can we look, learn the rules of, well, you need these neighboring input stations to be on in this particular sequence to turn on this kind of activity in the network? Yeah,
1: but you're reducing it down to you're electrically stimulating the inputs, right. not doing these natural odors, but that gives you way more control.
0: Right, and I think, I mean, there are, there are variants on this. So the simplest way is to do electrical stimulation. Now there are much more sophisticated ways to do this with, with uh, molecular tools. But the idea is the same, is that you can start to dissect, when you see some complex pattern of firing in a behaving animal that's navigating through some you know, spatial task, Right, it's very difficult to say, well, this spike is occurring in the hippocampus because of this one pathway, or it came fifty milliseconds after the animal did this left turn. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that information about how these local circuits and narrow town domains process information is going to come from some of these reduced preparations. What are the insights that
1: your lab has added to let's let's start with the olfactory system since we've been talking about that. What are some of the, I would say, ideas that have come from your lab?
0: Well, so my group um, has been interested in the synaptic circuitry in the olfactory bulb. Um, We worked on the organization of the inhibitory circuits. We've done a lot of work on on what is the microcircuits that control the excitability of the, the output cells in the olfactory bulb. We've had a sort of side light. Our hobby of the lab is rescuing cell types from obscurity. Ramoni Hall, who was the godfather of all of neuroscience, uh, who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and just did an amazing job cataloging the different cell types based just on the morphology of the cells. And um, the neuroscience field has focused to a huge degree on a small number of these cell types. And... In part, this is driven by where the behavioral significance, how to link certain activity in certain cells to behavior. Um, but in part, it, it turns out to be just someone else did it someone already. Someone did this earlier, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you can go to the neuroscience meeting and you can see thousands of these presentations on the same couple of cell types. And so the question is, is that a rational decision that really we understand the system and really we should have all these groups focused on, you know, the top 10 cell types mm-hmm. in the brain? Let's hope we got them right. Right. And so the, the way we got into this sort of hobby is in the olfactory bulb. And we found, we, so I had a student who, uh, who was interested in sort of the underdog story. You know, very much interested in sort of underrepresented things that would be cool. And uh maybe, you know, so what he did was to go after the oddball cells in the brain slice. And sort of against my suggestion that he should focus on what what I would think would be sort of the the cooler things. But he thought, you know, these cells turned out to actually be larger and easier to record from than the cells most people were focused on. And he was very eager, and he was very successful just in the first couple of weeks of doing this to show these cells are not unhealthy. They're perfectly healthy in the brain slice. They have a completely different morphology than the cells that are nearby. And he sort of had a breakthrough in that he found these cells had a huge functional effect. So these cells have this sort of intrinsic memory. So these are cells in your olfactory bulb that are interneurons. So he did the actual difficult paired recordings to show these cells are GABAergic, they express an inhibitory transmitter. And they have, when the, the cell is excited briefly, the cell maintains a memory of that excitation all by itself, independent of any other transmitter. Mm. And this is really cool in the olfactory system, because if you think about how you do the sense of smell, it's phasic. right? You're sniffing things. Mm. And so you have... You know, every few hundred milliseconds you have another inhalation that is bringing new odorants into your nose. So you have to keep a, a log of this information? Well, so or... there are a couple of cool things about this, right? So every other cell type in the olfactory system, at least that I know of, has just transient activity. So if you smell an odor, this Odor drives receptor cells in your nose, which drives the olfactory bulb, which drives the olfactory cortex, which drives lots of other cortical areas. But that input subsides when you breathe out, when you breathe out. And this is the only cell in the olfactory system that can keep firing at the same rate in the absence of this, you know, continuous odor stimulation. And so there's lots of behavioral evidence that you can actually do, or a rodent probably uh, can do it even better, to accumulate information between sniffs. Right. So if you, it's hard to do with graduate students, but you can test your rodents and you yeah. can say, you know, you have to make a decision, right? Mm-hmm. You know, was it the same odor or a different odor? And if it's, you know, two different, vastly different odors, you can do that perfectly well with one sniff. But if it's a really hard discrimination, say it's a mixture of a couple of different odorants that only vary by five or ten percent mm-hmm. in the binary mixture, it's a really hard task.
1: Right? Did you try doing this, by the way? No, this is
0: not our work. Oh, okay. This is, this is our classic work oh, in okay. olfaction. And, uh, and so rodents can do better on these hard tasks if they are allowed to take multiple sniffs. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, That sort of raises the question, well, how do you integrate information from the second and the third sniff into the response that's triggered by the first sniff, right? So how do you build up this complex perception of an odor based on these individual epochs of activity, right? And so we have no idea if these new interneurons that the student found really play a role in that, but it's the first sort of guess of a system that could be active in the gaps between these these cells, and so these cells also have a very, very nice, very precise timing of their action potentials. And so it, it gives an idea that, well, maybe the olfactory system has a sort of very primitive form of a clock that beats out time so that when the next sniff comes in, the, the spikes that are triggered by that next spike can somehow be organized in a temporal, in the same sort of temporal rhythm mm. that the spikes that came from the first sniff are. And that's, so that's, speculation but that's sort of the idea of what what you could use a cell that has this sort of intrinsic time making capability for that has persistence and so we've now done four three or four cells that we have rescued from oblivion that were described by the spanish anatomist a hundred years ago and have been in all the his papers and books for people to follow and you know it's not and each one has their own story to tell. So it's a matter of, like, finding people who like this sort of thing to say, well, here, we're going to adopt this cell type and figure out what it's good for. Why is it in the brain?
1: What was the – so we just talked about one in particular. What's what's What are those cells called? They're called Blanus cells. Blanus cells.
0: Yeah, so uh they're Blanes in English, but okay. that's, uh, it's from Spanish. I think it would be called Blanus. And okay. it was named – Cajal named it for his medical student who was working at the lab who worked on that project. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, it was,
1: uh, it's a nice continuum
0: from that. So we've done, uh, another cell type. We've published another cell type in the olfactory bulb. We published this cell type in the dentate gyrus. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got the, a couple more in the pipeline in the olfactory bulb. Cause you're like
1: the digger, just bringing back all the new, (laughs) or at least (laughs) Cahal found these cell types. So I don't know, you would be the, just... Pulling the underdogs back into well, the... <laughs> so this is not
0: this is not the uh, this is not the work that is the mainstream focus of the lab, but yeah. it, it's because it, we also it's it's has to be paired with a lot of hard work that yeah. other people will have to do that we don't we don't have the techniques for in my lab to understand using mo- molecular tools what's the function of the whole animal. Okay, right. So I think that sort of down the road is to eventually be able to modulate the function of this one cell type in the olfactory bone and ask, well, really, does this impair your integration of information over multiple sniffs, mm-hmm. or is that just a wild speculation that mm-hmm. is, is uh, sort of neither here nor there? So uh,
1: that has a little bit to do with me- working memory or at least keeping information about smells, but you also do some research about uh, this other brain area, the hippocampus, that does sort of it's classically known to be uh, important for working memory could you tell ta- tell us about that brain area and then can you give us a just a very intro level on what working memory even is what yeah. could that actually be represented as
0: well so the the dentate and the hippocampus are not most people's first choice for working memory there are some some studies on on working memory there but we it's an area that we've used in an experimentally mm-hmm. reduced preparation to show a short-term memory effect oh, yeah, on sure. on sort of using an artificial stimulus in a brain slice. What's the uh, What's the classic? I'm thinking episodic memory from the yeah, hippocampus. But yeah, yeah. So the yeah. so the hippocampus has a lot of connections to memory, right? Mm-hmm. So for working memory, if I were to tell you the phone number of you know the restaurant, you know, you can use mostly cortical areas, pre uh, prefrontal and other neocortical areas to remember that yeah. that phone number. So there is a couple of other kinds of memories. So there are uh, declarative memories, long-term declarative memories. So your memory of your eighth grade birthday party, right? Your memory of, you know, who was the 20th president of the United States. Those are declarative memories. And then there are implicit memories. So there are, you know, as you, if you decide you're going to start playing basketball and you go out to the courts every day, you get better mm-hmm. at, uh, at, at, hitting the hoop, uh, hitting the net. And, you know, how you get better, you have no conscious connection to. You just know that if you're going to play the piano every day, you're going to do the, the, you know, the same sort of technique, you're going to get better and better at that. And that is a different area that probably is not as much involved in the hippocampus. Um, and sort of the, the reason we know about these differences in, in memory especially in their relation to hippocampus, is because the most famous case study in all of neuroscience is a case by the name of initials of H.M., who just died five five years ago, seven years ago. And he had uh, epilepsy surgery that had both hippocampi and several related structures removed, and he wasn't able to form new new long-term declarative memories. But he could form new implicit memories, and so that was done by Brenda Milner, who's one of the most famous behavioral neuroscientists, and she had him do sort of an odd task where you have to draw between two stars, so inner and outer star, and you have to trace along that without hitting the boundaries, right? Which isn't such a hard task, but if you have to do it looking at a mirror, it's a really hard task. So it was
1: an inverted, right? Right, everything's
0: inverted. And so... You or I would be terrible at this, but we, if, you know, if this is what we had to do every day, we would get better and better at drawing between these two stars. And that was one of the tests that she used to show he improved just like a person who hadn't had their temporal lobes resected. Mm -hmm. So the the ability to have this, um, anterior grade amnesia. So he had memories from before the surgery, but couldn't form new long-term declarative memories could form new long-term implicit memories and had intact working memory, right? So that sort of was the the lightning rod that drew drew people to look at the hippocampus as in what's called consolidation and moving some short-term representation of information into a longer-term storage, right? The storage certainly can't be in the hippocampus because this patient had intact memories. He could remember his earlier events before the surgery, Mm -hmm. right? So how this consolidation process works is still, you know, very much an active area of research. And our work is is at a cellular level, but it's asking sort of very simple questions about how can the hippocampus, and one part of the hippocampus, hippocampal formation called the dentate gyrus, how can it create population codes that represents different kinds of information, right? And so we use a this reduced preparation that has a limited amount of circuitry, which is good and it's bad, mm-hmm. right? So a limited amount of circuitry limits how much effort it takes to narrow down where something could be happening. But obviously we're missing a lot of the connections, and we've, and we've also damaged part of the brain that we're studying, right? But enough is left, enough works, that we can get some information out of that, and so we found sort of an unusual way to ask about memory where we have a, an isolated piece of brain tissue that we can actually use, we can encode information by turning on different pathways mm-hmm. and then we can read out that information.
1: How do you do that? How do you give different patterns of information to this circuit?
0: Right. So we have this isolated piece of the hippocampus and we can simply activate Different inputs to the hippocampus by putting in a metal electrode, and we can do this for any number of, of pathways we want to. So most of what we're doing now using is using uh, an array that has four four stimulating sites. They're spaced 100 150 microns apart, and so we're activating four different regions of the four different input bundles to the hippocampus mm-hmm. of presumably about the same kind of synaptic input and then we read it out by recording the electrical activity that represents the actual synaptic inputs to cells that are downstream
1: mm-hmm. so you're recording from the downstream cells a, a multitude of them yeah. and then you're doing uh, different in bundles of electrical stimulation which is presumably inc- this would be the assumption is, is like those would be different sort of input patterns in the in the in- intact brain
0: right yeah right but with the proviso that this is highly crude because we are electrically stimulating, so we're synchronously activating these different sub, subgroups of, of inputs. Where normally you would be activating these inputs by having some activity pattern in the neurons that are connected to these axons. So, um, and so what we found is that you can actually do this trick where you can turn on just very briefly one, say one of these four pathways... And you could read out for many seconds later, five to ten seconds later, you can read out far above chance what which one was turned on. And this is based on like the the uh, similarity of the output. So there are a couple of ways. In principle, this could happen, right? So the simplest way is well, you know, input A gives you a big response, input B gives you a medium response, and input A gives you a weak response. So all I could do is measure any cell, and it'll give you that answer, whether it's big, middle, or small amount of input, or in this case, frequency of EPSVs. This turned out to be not nearly that simple. So that would be called a rate code, that's an average response amplitude. And here, that kind of information is almost irrelevant to it. So what matters here is the differences in how the downstream cells respond to a given stimulus. Right? So what tell what you what this in this one experiment, what allows you to tell the difference between different kinds of inputs is that, you know, in one input your first cell went really high, your second cell didn't respond, but in the other input it was flipped. Right? The other cell went up, and then the, the first cell didn't go. Mm-hmm. And if it were that binary, you'd have a very limited capacity. You'd quickly run out of, of cells if everyone had just their their connection to that one stimulus. So it ends up being a population code where you look at, you do techniques that allow, in analysis, allow you to amplify that heterogeneity between different cells, right? And if you're concentrating your analysis on... Trying to understand how different cells you're recording at the same time responded, you know, whether they responded the same way or differently. That's the way that, at least in our experiments, is the best way to read out the information.
1: Mm, I see. So, there, and there's more, info, it's a richer form of information. And this is also, I'm assuming, depending on how many cells you're recording from. Right. So.
0: Right, and it's very much in line with you know, the other half of our world in olfaction, where you go back to the question of how do you tell the difference between smelling spearmint and peppermint, right, and presumably have a lot of overlapping input that doesn't really contribute to that one question of how do you tell these two similar odors apart. And so presumably a lot of the olfactory system functions by throwing out or minimizing the common information and giving you a richer representation of what's different, Mm -hmm. right? In the olfactory system, that's really hard. It's a really hard problem because these things are coming in at different times, right? So the animal has to keep some representation of what the first odor was, right? And here we're just comparing, you know, what happens when you give this one stimulus, or we also can do this as sequences. So we can do uh, kind of contextual memory where we can encode uh, activation pattern That occurs in time, and we can say that this brain area, even though it's just an isolated piece of the hippocampus, it can tell us the contextual information associated with one sequence or another, Mm. right? And it's very much, to our our, uh, view, it's very much analogous to the question of how do you have the brain or local circuits in the brain connected in a way that either can give you the common thing in two inputs or give you the difference, what's different between two inputs, or give you what's, what's similar about the dynamics in two inputs. So I think that we're, we're trying to kind of to find general principles that relate the specific patterns and the specific properties of individual cells to their function in the circuit.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back in time and talk about your interest in science to begin with. Do you have a Do you have a story or any sort of um, uh, It's just what are the What inclines you to want to go down a path of uh, doing science and in particular neuroscience?
0: Yeah, well, so I had wonderful teachers all the way through. I was very very fortunate. Um, you know, I grew up in a suburb of New York City that had uh, you know wonderful public schools with wonderful science teachers who were passionate and so. I think that was the initial spark. And then, um, so I went to college and then immediately started working in re- they, the college I went to encourage you to work in research labs as soon as you were able to. And, uh, and so I had a wonderful time. First lab I worked in was a neuroscience lab and it stuck. And oh, nice. you got yeah. the bug early. At- yeah. So it's, uh, I think neuroscience has been an incredible field, um, for a long time, and it will be for a long time because the problems are so difficult. Yeah. Uh, but really, I've had a sort of normal trajectory where you know, the the great experiences with great teachers have have prompted me to go to the next step along the way. Do you have a
1: me- mentor in particular that sort of really uh, shaped the scientists that you are today? Or is well, it so the most yeah?
0: influential uh, teachers, were certainly the most at the time the most difficult i think that's probably a common experience but i had one uh one professor in college who was convinced that the not just my undergraduate research project was stupid but the entire field i was working in was stupid and uh and he had a class where we actually had to go up and present our what we were doing as our undergraduate research so he could tear it apart <laughs> And I don't think there are many schools that uh, let you get away with that, but oh, back man. then that was, uh, that was a very stressful class to take, but it was also kind of vindictive, <laughs> just like sitting up there and yelling at students. Well, but he, it's, I but think part yeah. of what science is, is to understand that it's not, it's not like, uh, a case where, you know, you can have any view you want, mm-hmm. right? You have to be able to back up. If you say, mm-hmm. I think something works because of this mechanism, you present your evidence, but you have to be able to stand back and let other people test it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that was part of the lesson that I learned um, in college in this very difficult but in the end very rewarding classes is that that you, it's not enough to say, well, I think this is cool, I want to work on this. You have to say, well, this thing is significant, this work is significant because of this. this. The result we found is backed up by these pieces of evidence. And it's not just sort of because you're really nice or you say it really well. It's true. It has to stand up to people testing it Mm -hmm. and criticizing it. Uh, but this professor also was phenomenal for students because he, he part of the class, was reading the original Hodgkin-Huxley papers, which are some of the classic works in neuroscience. And he, and they're written in an older notation, so the, all the graphs are sort of not in modern form. And this was back in the 80s, and he redrew every figure in all these papers so that we could understand it. Right. He you know gave us the original paper, but then he gave us his annotated version of the entire series of these papers, oh. which was a big undertaking. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's part of this is the learning that it's not just that you want to do something and it's cool. It's that you want to do something and hopefully, you know, has significance and hopefully will stand up. Yeah. Do you um do you have
1: family members or parents that did science or academics or are you kind of? Uh... No. Nope. You yeah, have first of the family.
0: Yeah.
1: So. Do you have Do you have fun talking to them about your,
0: your research? <laughs> uh, they're in a different different. Uh, they were both book editors when I was growing up, yeah. so it was not a lot of overlap. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I think also I think part of science, learning to do the science, is also learning how to communicate broadly, especially about the significance of what you're doing. Definitely, we hear. At That's Brayman. what you're doing yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely appreciate
1: that. Um, so you, we talked actually about your grad school experience a little bit. Um, could you tell us about then the next step? So that was at Yale, correct? Right. Yeah.
0: Um, well, so yeah, the the, the influential professor was uh, the people who would know in the field was Jerry Letvin at MIT, yeah. uh, who had you know, written some of the, the most influential systems neuroscience papers. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then at Yale, I worked with Gordon Shepard, and then I had a, a postdoc in University of Washington, working on sort of beginning this work on the dentate hilus and dentate gyrus. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to be at Bell Labs for a year, sort of the heyday of all the neuroscience happening there, working with David Tank. Yeah, um, these are these imaging kind of. Uh... So this was you know starting. This was the beginning of the two photon imaging, applying that to neuroscience. Um, yeah. And so
1: did you um how did you come about that uh joining Bell Labs was it Well a... I
0: was just there as a visitor for a year um at the end of the postdoc period okay. um, and then uh so it was just a, it was a wonderful experience to sort of be there and see how how these incredible microscope systems work to be able to do the two-photon imaging in slices and they were just beginning it in vivo at the time um and so it was a wonderful scientific experience, and also it was a wonderful technical experience. That has. How so we w- it? we went away from that, and we have, one, and built our own two photon in part because they were all so supportive. They said they would come out and help us if it <laughs> if yeah. it didn't work. So
1: what's what's that experience like building your own
0: uh, well it's, expensive uh, yeah, microscope? Yeah, it was uh, a little bit of trepidation buying a you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollar laser without knowing it would actually do anything. So <laughs> so but yeah. But it I think part in science is uh is, you know, take a risk and then you get the payoff. But we were we didn't have the funding to get you know at the time we're just outrageously expensive systems. Probably still are outrageously expensive commercial systems. And we also wanted to do something a little bit different, have it optimized for the kinds of experiments we want to do. And so you know, in the lab, we do build a lot of our own stuff, and we do a lot of our own programming. But I think the other part is once you build one of these things, it's easy to build a bunch. So we have a bunch of different two-photon right. systems that are all home-built.
1: I'm assuming that gives you a very deep understanding of how the thing works if you're yeah. built it from scratch.
0: Well, yeah. So we we make we our systems certainly don't make the prettiest images, okay. um, but they work well for us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think. There, I think there's also one theme in my lab is that we do a lot of work on on data analysis that's a little bit different, right? So not many people take the reduced brain slice preparation and look at mnemonic representation and contextual information, right? And it's not the same – it's not the kind of experiment you could really do with sort of canned programs from from companies. And so – you know, I've been fortunate in having you know a lot of students who want to delve in to do MATLAB coding for a year to figure out you know how to where the information is right. So it really is like a exploration, you know, to see you know can we what can we dig out of that, and that's what we're doing on the sabbatical too.
1: Well, Could you tell us about that? Ex- yeah, so I'm a like...
0: I'm an old fashioned biologist, physiologist, but I'm spending the year in the applied math department in Seattle, at the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And in part because I, and I heard several of the people in this department that I'm visiting give talks a year and a half ago that were in completely different areas, but they were facing exactly the same kinds of difficulty in trying to figure out where the information is in this system. And they're working in the retina, I was working in the hippocampus. But they those talks gave us insight that we immediately applied to our questions in the campus. That it opened up a whole bunch of frontiers for us. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit also an odd thing. They're interested in in most people are interested in the signal. They're interested in the noise. Mm-hmm. You know, they're interested in the the what's the statistics of the variability from trial to trial.
1: So, is there information in the noise itself? Yeah,
0: is there structure to the noise and and I think people are more and more interested in this question, but it, it's still sort of a little bit off the, the tangent, I would say, certainly for the hippocampal world. And uh, so I thought this would be great. I mean, if we're, if we're ever going to apply these, these methods of looking at noise correlations, there's no better place to do it than this group in Seattle. So, so I'm halfway through the sabbatical and having a great time there.
1: Excellent. It's interesting to get people's, you know, fresher perspective on something if they've been thinking about this problem from like one preparation, the retina or something like that, yeah. realizing that, you know, the underlying maybe like uh, computations are maybe right. similar. Right. I think
0: that's that's very much the question of, of are, if you're able to find a general principle that works across the you know hippocampus and the retina. It sounds like that's a question you've trying to yeah, answer. That, yeah, That's probably a useful thing to pursue. Yeah. Because these are very divergent brain areas that have you know, not much in common. Mm-hmm. Um so I think this is still sort of work in progress, but so far it's looking it's looking really promising that we can, you know, we can take some of their advances in understanding how the retina circuitry functions and apply them directly to the questions in our reduced preparation in the hippocampus.
1: Uh, do you enjoy uh, mentoring students and postdocs? Uh, what, how do you feel about uh, the also teaching component of yeah, being so a professor? Yeah,
0: so in my department in, where I work in Cleveland, we have a, a large, vibrant graduate program. Uh, we have some postdocs too, but where we have a focus on the Ph.D. program. And we've had exceptional students, and I think the, the thing that unifies our whole department is this you know, commitment to the graduate program. We sink or we swim based on our graduate students. And I think that's, that's a common theme probably in many great, many good programs. Um, so I think part of the role of the mentor is to sort of connect, once they get to know the student, to connect the student with sort of the project or the nudge them in one way or another to sort of where, you know, where their interests go, where they could be, you want to, at the end of the day, your job is to sort of create a situation where the magic happens, right? And I think my role as the mentor is to have the people work in my lab discover something that's beautiful, right? And I think, you know, I can help a little bit in getting it published, maybe by editing their, their text or telling them they really need to do this other control. But really, the magic happens from them, right? And, uh and so the hard part is just finding the thing the question or the preparation or the you know the approach that they're going to be passionate about and they really care about and they'll create something beautiful out of uh and that might take a few different attempts to find the right thing but but i think that's one, one advantage of having a lab where we work in a couple of different areas brain areas we work at a couple of different levels at the cellular level at the circuit level
1: allows you to find the match that that will get them to be passionate or at least like find something yeah
0: yeah and in this in the case of this hippocampal short-term memory it's also you know we went through uh we went through a period in the wilderness where you know we weren't we'd gone a couple of years or the students gone a couple of years and it's we shot down the main hypothesis we were going for and we yeah. didn't know mm-hmm. we didn't know where we'd end up and so i think that's also you know you earned your salary by you know Finding another reason why we shouldn't just abandon this thing yeah. because it's eventually going to pay off, mm-hmm. uh, but we did go. You know, this student was really persever- persevered through you know a dark period where we had no idea where this phenomenon that we knew existed where it was coming from, yeah. and it wasn't clear we'd ever get to the mechanism you know, in a reasonable amount of time. So, uh, but we did, and he graduated in four the regular four years. That can be he, scary,
1: but that's ex- ex- exciting and hopeful for. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, but I think that's also you. You want to take some risks in your time, and you want to you know push on the questions that are going to be really significant, and know when to give up on the questions that are not going to be tractable. Do you have any um,
1: outside activities or kind of things when you're not doing science that you like to spend time thinking about?
0: Yeah, well, so I, when I lived out in the west, I was really you know avid into. Uh, Camping and hiking and photography and all the things you can do when there are mountains. And so, Cleveland doesn't have quite the the natural (laughs) geography. So, (laughs) so Cleveland is more sort of taking plane trips to beautiful areas and going camping and and stuff like that. But now in Seattle for the year, we've done quite a bit of camping. I'm sure you're you're a lot right there. Yeah. (laughs) So that's been that's been great. And you know, so I think, and that's the students around the. At least the math department students are even more avid than, <laughs> yeah, so they're up at the top of Rainier, it seems like, all the time. <laughs> Not at the very top, but even in the Close. the winter, they're pretty near the top. So That's awesome. Um,
1: and do you have, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, any sort of thing that you're passionate about as a... Scientists, would like yeah. to talk about.
0: Well, I think you guys are are doing a great job in the in the communication here. Right, I think right. that's what the science needs is more passionate about, not just doing the science, but sort of explaining that. So I think mm-hmm. you know think it's wonderful to be here and have this opportunity to talk about the work. Well, Ben, thank you so much for talking with us. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you. Uh-huh.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at
0: brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.